Gracious, loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us, and now give us your spirit that we may hear and obey and respond. Father, we pray that you'd bless us as we think through the entire message of the whole Bible, as we think through what your mission is, and we ask for your spirit's help that we might think through our lives and think through ways that we can be more on board with your mission. Father, bless us in this for your glory and our joy together here in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been frustrated with church? Why might that have been? There are many reasons for frustration with church, right? The music isn't contemporary enough. The music isn't traditional enough. The preaching is too content heavy. The preaching isn't content heavy enough. The church doesn't meet my needs. It doesn't reach out enough. It doesn't fill in the blank. If you've been frustrated with the church, then what is the solution? Better music, better preaching, more outreach, less other stuff. But then who decides what we should or shouldn't be doing as a church? Years ago, we had a family who left our church and the wife of the family expressed frustrations. And in some ways, their frustrations boil down to this. What they thought was the purpose of church was not matching their experience at our church. Ah, now we're getting to the bottom of it. Differences of purpose that ultimately lead to frustration. So what is the purpose of church? Why does church exist? See, if the church you're attending, maybe ours, has a different purpose to what you think it should be, then it will end in frustration and unhappiness. But if we align ourselves with God's purposes for his church, then that changes everything. It changes everything about how we live and what we live for. So what is God's purpose for his church? And does it match our own purpose for our own church? Now, before we move on to answering those questions, we need to be clear on some definitions. And I want to be clear on how I'm using the word mission and church throughout the sermon. Now, if you haven't picked up already, I've been using the word purpose a fair bit already. See, today we're looking at the mission of the church. And when you hear, about the, when you hear that word mission, we often tend to think immediately about evangelism and reaching the lost and sending missionaries. And that's all true. Today, however, we're using the word mission more in the sense of purpose. What is the mission, the particular task or purpose that we are trying to achieve? And when we speak about church today, or the church, I'll be speaking of us in particular, here at Esley Church, the, a local gathering of believers. So the question that is before us today is, what is Esley Church, as a local gathering of believers here, supposed to do? What is our purpose? What is the task that God is wanting us to achieve now, when it comes to a mission or a purpose statement, most companies and organizations, they have to make it up. Google, Apple, the biggest companies to your corner shop serious about their business, they all set out a plan. They all refine it. They all work on it. They sometimes spend millions of dollars working out a mission statement, fine-tuning it and presenting it for those who are interested. A clear mission, a clear purpose, if you're running a massive business or an enterprise, is necessary. Because if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, then you better get out of that business. Now, here's the good news for us this afternoon. 
The good news is that the mission of the church is already set. Right? It's being given to us. It's a short, clear, simple statement about what the church is to be on about. And it's found in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. So read with me again, verse 18, Matthew 28, verse 18 onwards. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, Two things, uh, two points to say about this very familiar passage. Point one, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus gives the instructions on what the mission involves, right? The main activity of the mission that Jesus gives his church is to make disciples of all nations. That's the big picture work. The church is to preach the gospel and help people follow Jesus by committing their lives to him. Now, from the general work of making disciples, Jesus gives two ways, that, uh, two uh, aspects of, it, of how that um, happens. The first is in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, the emphasis here is not on the physical act of baptism, uh, but on what we are immersing people into. We are immersing people into an understanding of the Trinity. A disciple is someone who is growing in their understanding, immersing and engaging themselves in who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, second is in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, right? Being a disciple of Jesus is about knowing who God is fully in his triune nature and living in obedience as a response to that knowledge. Jesus makes demands on our lives. And a disciple is someone who will hear them, take them to heart, and live them out in response. So point one, put simply, we are on about helping people to know God fully and obey Jesus. Now point number two about this passage, what is it that qualifies Jesus to give this mission? You go back in verse 18, and he says it there, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So through Jesus' obedience to death on the cross and his resurrection in power, Jesus shows that he was perfectly sinless, always obedient to his Father, and the fulfiller of all the expectations and prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, as the one who did all of this, God the Father bestowed on Jesus all his authority to rule and to reign. Jesus is the King. And as our kids love to sing in the car, the mighty, mighty King. He rules. And he promises to be with us in this mission as well. Now, I think if you've been around church for any length of time, this will sound familiar, right? If you've been at church for any length of time, you've probably heard longer sermons on that passage. But notice, if you will, uh, something in particular. If you have a physical Bible, hold it up in your hands for a moment and open there at Matthew 28. And you'll notice that Matthew 28 comes about three quarters of the way through the Bible. If you're coming in halfway through a movie and you see the climactic scene, it's probably going to be powerful. It's going to be great. It might be a great moment. But you're going to lose the impact of that moment if you don't know the rest of the story. So when you think about the Great Commission, how does it fit into the main story? What is the story, the rest of the story, uh, 
that feeds into the Great Commission. Let's do a bit of Bible flipping right now. Over three passages, I'm going to attempt to give the story of the entire Bible. So begin with me in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. We're going to begin here because this passage shows us God's intention for the creation of man and woman. Verse 26 to 28, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So... God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, the Bible opens up with the story of how God created everything. He creates in a good, orderly way. The pinnacle of his creation was man and woman. So unlike other parts of creation, man and woman are made in his image. They are to be his representatives on earth, to rule this world, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And they are to do all of that as representatives of God the King. Uh, the Commonwealth Games have been on, are on at the moment. One of the distinguishing things about the games is that all athletes wear a uniform. Now, the uniform helps distinguish which country they're representing. And that's the point. The uniform shows they represent someone. So how they act, how they play, how they perform is a reflection upon the country they represent. Bearing God's image is a little bit like that. Humans have God's image, unlike every other part of creation. They wear his uniform. And how humans uh, were to rule this world was to be done as God's representatives. And it's all to be done to the glory of God. Uh, You don't have to flick here. It's up on the screen. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things... And by your will they existed and were created. You see it there? God is worthy to receive glory because he created all things. And they exist by his will. Creation, everything in this world, and the pinnacle of creation, man and woman, exist to glorify God. But this world and humans living in it are not quite the picture of creation, that creation anymore. Right? That's because of Genesis chapter 3. Right? Adam and Eve rebel against God. They choose to eat the fruit. They are not, they're told not to. And in doing that, they wreck the world, they wreck their lives, and they wreck the lives of every human after them. Our hearts are now bent like theirs towards rejecting him and rebelling against him. We saw this a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 3. You got your Bibles there? Flick with me to Romans chapter 3. And here Paul lays out very thickly the great issue that humanity has as they stand before God. Romans chapter 3, from verses 10 onwards to uh, verse 18, he kind of lays out his summary argument against humanity. We're just going to read verses 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Not even one, no one does good, not even one. You see, while every human heart is bent this way, we know that this is not the end of the story. We know that Jesus has come. We have heard this time and again in the book of Romans. And I trust from every passage of scripture that we've walked through uh, over the last 10 years or so, we've heard the constant good news that God has done a great reversal. Jesus has come, lived perfectly in our place, suffered in our place, and is raised to life so that we can be forgiven, that we can be reconciled to God, have eternal life with God, and new life now. So we turn to our final passage this morning, Revelation chapter 5 again. And we we see God's end goal, his ultimate purpose in creating us and working through our sinfulness by sending Jesus to die in our place. The ultimate mission behind all of that here in Revelation chapter 5. Now in Revelation 4 we saw God sitting on the throne is worthy of all uh, praise and honor and glory. And here the Lamb comes in chapter 5 and they sing a new song, verse 9. Worthy are you, Lamb of God, to take the scroll and open its seals. That is, this is another way of saying that Jesus has God's authority to act. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Uh, carry on in verse 9. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them, all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. See, what this final passage in Revelation shows us is that God's ultimate mission is to be worshipped and glorified. God achieves this by sending his son to die in our place so that we can come back to God in true relationship with him. So we can see God for who he really is and worship and glorify for him for all his goodness and his beauty and his wisdom and power and might. So there can be nothing more important or of greater priority in our lives. To glorify God through Jesus Christ is the chief purpose of every man and woman. Our highest purpose and aim in life is to glorify God. A disciple, then, is someone who understands this and understands how this is possible because of the Father's plans, the Son's obedience, and the Spirit's indwelling within us to help us know these things and trust in them. A disciple is then someone who obeys Jesus and lives to glorify God in all that they do. Now, the New Testament is full of ways that we do this individually and as a church, but let me highlight one important passage to show how we as a church do it together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. If you found it quickly, then help your neighbor to find it as well. Ephesians 
Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 11. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There are three goals here. Three goals that glorify God in our local gathering. First, in the first half of verse 13, God gifts his church with the right people to minister to each other so that we attain unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus. Right? Unity. Unity is not just about doing stuff together. Unity is about helping each other to know Jesus better, to love Jesus better, and to live for Jesus and not for ourselves. Second is in the second half of verse 13. We keep encouraging and building each other up until we reach maturity of faith as measured by Jesus himself. We keep encouraging each other to know and love Jesus until we look more and more like Jesus ourselves, right? We're never going to be perfect. That's not the goal. The goal is not perfection like him. But we encourage each other to love more like him, to be more patient like him, to be more discerning like he was discerning, to be kind and compassionate as he was to all. Third goal is at the the end of verses 15 and 16. We do all of this in love. We speak the truth in love to each other. We build each other up in love. What we believe, what we say, how we act with each other will be marked by love. So let's put all of that that we've gone through briefly together. God's ultimate mission is to bring himself glory and praise. Humans rebelled against this mission, wrecking our world and our lives in the process. God's mission then is to restore his glory by sending his son Jesus to die in the place of rebellious humanity. Those who trust in Jesus are forgiven and reconciled and were able to see him for what he's worth and able to glorify and worship him. That is God's mission and it's ours as well. SLE Church seeks the glory of God above all else. We do this by proclaiming, preaching Jesus to non-believers so that they might come to faith and repentance and be restored to right relationship with God. And we preach Jesus to believers as well so that they will grow in love and unity and maturity of faith until they look more and more like their Savior. Our job is to equip each other to be convicted and involved in this mission. So, Our mission, the purpose of our existence, is to preach the gospel, make disciples, grow disciples in unity, maturity, and love to the glory of God. How do you think we're going at that? If I had to ask you to assess our church, SLE Church, how well do you think we're going at that? I think, in my reflection, honestly, I think we're going okay. 
I think there are some areas that we're strong at and some areas that need to be strengthened. Let's have a think about the areas that we're strong at first. Right? In my reflections, when I, this, so this sermon is based on the Bible study uh, that we did last year or towards the end of last year. I personally ran the, this Bible study in SALT, our teens group, Sunday YF, the local university students, Clay, the young workers group, and Rivers of Living Water. So from teens to retirees, I had a really nice cross-section of people to run this with. And to my great encouragement, no one came to a different conclusion. Right? No one in the Bible study sat there and went, whoa, what? This is new? I've never heard of this before. Right? It didn't happen. That's really encouraging. And I praise God for that. And I think this is a result uh, partly within uh, those groups in particular over the past 10 years and through the life and history of this church that we've worked hard each week to open God's word, to study it together, to know Jesus better and to encourage each other to live out these truths. So praise God for that. Now, maybe for some of us here, this is actually fairly new or it's actually been crystallized for the first time. Well, praise God for that too. So I think we're doing okay when it comes to teaching the Bible. Uh, there's always room for improvement, and I do thank you very much for your patience with Ben and I, especially when we give a flop of a sermon. All right, it's going to happen. Uh, ben turns 40 this year, even though he doesn't look like it, and I turn 37, even though I look older than Ben. <laughs> and God willing there's going to be another 30 plus years of ministry for both of us individually and prayerfully and I hope 30 plus years of ministry here at SLE Church. And that means that we're going to keep growing better as preachers and teachers of God's word and equipping each other here to be better teachers of God's word. And we appreciate your prayers to that end. But what are our blind spots? Where are we not so strong? See, when we did this Bible study, this mission Bible study, Ben wrote these concluding lines. We do all of this relying on God's strength through the power of the Spirit with prayerful dependence, and we do this with wholeheartedly and single-mindedly with the grace that God richly gives us. See that there in the middle? Prayerful dependence. I know we can do better at this. I think we can grow our understanding of prayer better so that we can be more prayerfully dependent on God to accomplish his mission. Now, I'm not exactly sure how we can, be, how we can actually physically grow prayer in our church with all the activities that we do, and I'm very open to suggestions, but I know that we have to recapture the centrality of prayer in our church life together. Another area that I think we may be a little blind to is I think an area that we may feel we're doing better at than we actually are, and that's church growth. Now, in terms of maturity, church growth and maturity, I think our church is going well, but in terms of numbers, I hope and pray that we see our church growth for what it really is. And you think about it, uh, for those who don't know, 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, our church was at about 80 to 90 people just meeting in that hall. Our then pastor, Steve Nation, took 25 of us out and planted uh, an evening congregation called 517 Church. And so Ben came in at roughly the same time as Steve came out, went out to plant that church. So Ben came in with a church of around 60 to 70 regular attendees. In 10 years, it's gone from 70 
to over 300 each weekend. That's pretty impressive. Uh, Last year, I'm not sure if you heard, but when we started the second semester at the beginning of the year in 2017, in the second service alone, we had 230 people. We have no idea how 230 people fit in there and the overflow room. And we, we, I do remember clearly people sitting in the hall on the floor. So from 70 to 300 in 10 years, that's 230 new people regularly attending with us over that time. Question, how many of them were converts? How many of that 230 were people who had come from non-Christian families and non-Christian backgrounds and put their faith and trust in Jesus. And I'll tell you, it's not that many. See, how our church has grown over the last 10 years has been through transfer. Christians coming from other churches and overseas to our church. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not complaining about that. I'm not complaining about it at all. I'm not saying that's bad. But I'm saying, and I praise God for it, but I do want to gently encourage us to not rest on what we apparently see. See, God's mission involves preaching Jesus to unbelievers so that they will come to faith and repentance and join God's kingdom and mission as well. So let's keep pursuing this part of his mission together. Let's have a think about then the things that might be preventing us from engaging with God's mission. Now, I'm going to spit out quite a few different things. I think it's about six or seven different things. So just have a think about one or two of the big things that might be relevant for you uh, later on in the discussion. First, maybe what's preventing you from engaging with God's mission is that you're actually not a Christian or you're not sure. So if you're not a Christian here, that's okay. Welcome. I hope you've come to learn about who Jesus is and to know more about what he's so wonderfully done for you. And if you are um, not a Christian here, if you're not sure, then your number one mission is not do what I've been talking about, but your number one mission is to find out more about Jesus, to find out more about how much he's done for you. I'd love to be able to uh, explain to you, and myself, your friends who brought you here today, we'd love to be able to share with you and explain to you why wrapping your life around Jesus makes the best sense of life. So if you'd like to find out more, let me encourage you to come and speak to me afterwards and ask questions and, and find out more. For the Christians among us, what is preventing you from engaging in God's mission? Do you feel ill-equipped Some of us feel that we're not really great at knowing and retelling the gospel. Some of us feel that we're just not good at articulating the gospel clearly, so we leave it for other people to do that job. Now, in some ways, I understand this, and I I sympathize with it. See, I do believe that being able to share the gospel clearly is a gift from God. So, In my time as a Christian, I've known a number of evangelists, People, I think, who have been specially gifted by God to be able to share the gospel clearly and articulately and courageously with everyone they meet. One of my friends, lifelong Christian friends, he would often sit on the bus and pray for the person sitting next to him 
And then after a 30-second prayer, just turn to them quickly and go, Hi, how are you going? Can I talk to you about Jesus? And you just do that every single bus trip. Right? God gifts some people with the courage and the ability to do that. Praise God. But if you can speak, if you've graduated high school, then we can all learn the gospel better and we can all learn how to share it better. Now, it, it takes time. It takes hard, sometimes a bit of hard work and it takes practice. But the more you do it, the better you become at it. So if you feel like you're not really good at sharing the gospel, don't use that as an excuse to never share the gospel. Use it as an encouragement to grow in your ability to do it. Maybe what prevents you from sharing the gospel is also a fear of man. Do you fear people's opinions or disapproval? Um, In the week, last two weeks I think, uh, there's an Australian footballer by the name of Israel Folau. He's a Christian. He got into a lot of trouble on Instagram and, and social media and the media in general because of things he said about homosexuality and his Christian faith. Now, what he said was a bit blunt, uh, probably not very careful. I think he could have said things in a more Jesus-centered way, but I'm not going to judge him for saying it. I think he, um, you know, he, he said clear Christian convictions on it. But when you look at how he was treated and how people responded to him, the way that our world generally responds to Christians and their opinions, you'd never want to stick your neck out again. If you get fired, if you, you know, you get fired, fired at from all sorts of different angles, from people you don't know, really, really vicious comments and messages, you don't want that in your life. Do you fear man's disapproval? The medicine for that is to meditate on the fear of the Lord. We need to grow our fear of God. Now, unfortunately, I don't have enough time in this sermon today to tease that out more. I'd love to be able to. But I will say this. A proper, biblically-driven fear of God means that you will fear nothing else. See, if you fear God rightly and biblically and appropriately, then you will not be afraid of anything else or any man. Come and speak to me afterwards if you'd like clarification on that. Maybe what prevents you from engaging with God's mission is that you're actually overly engaged in your own personal mission. Right? You're more involved in we're more involved in our desires than we are with God's desires. So your studies become a bigger priority, or they they shift to the center in a bigger way and begin to sideline Jesus and his mission. Or maybe your work is sucking up so much of your energy that you have very little, little time and energy left to give to God's mission. Right? In the future, or maybe you've seen it yourselves and how your parents have so focused on the family and giving the best opportunities for the family that all their time and energy is spent on family and very little is given to God's mission. 
That maybe a part of our, maybe our pursuit of security and comfort in this life is more meaningful or satisfying than being a part of God's mission. See, maybe there are things in our lives that we recognize are competing with this priority. And so what we might need to do is we might, have a, we might need to have a real heart-to-heart with God, a real heart-to-heart maybe with a trusted Christian friend to confess of how we are lessening the priority of the mission in our life. Right, that's, you know, a, a burden shared is a burden lightened, and it's what we're here together for, to help share each other's burdens, to help encourage each other to keep the mission central. Maybe what's preventing us from engaging with the mission of glorifying God is that we've limited our contact with non-Christians. You know, have a think about how many non-Christians you come into regular contact with. How many of them have you built friendships with? Or have you surrounded yourself with Christians? Now, a lot of you international students here. It's very easy to make sure that your housemates are all Christians, to hang out with them all the time. Right? And then if you're not hanging out with them all the time, you're, going to, you're spending your time just in Bible study or going to the Christian groups at university and then coming here to church. You will live life here in Brisbane in a Christian bubble. Now, I'm not saying any of that is bad. That's wonderful. Praise God for it. But the question is, are you neglecting reaching out to non-Christians with the gospel? Maybe what's preventing you from engaging deeper with the mission of God is your personal purity. Struggles with sexual purity and porn, relationships, physical intimacy with your boyfriend or girlfriend, all of that is going to sideline you in pursuing this mission. Will you trust the promises of God to help you wrestle with and overcome your temptations? Maybe what's preventing you from engaging deeper in the mission of God is tension with your family. I've had a few sad conversations of late with people who, over the past few months, have begun to doubt their faith or walked away from their faith. And in a lot of these instances, it's been because family was constantly making life hard. Non-Christian parents and other family members who kept beating you down because of your faith. And that's hard. It's really hard. You know, family should be a place where you feel safe. Your family is the place that you should feel safe. And here you are trying to follow Jesus and to trust him and live him. And you come back to a place where there is arguments, antagonism, leering, jeering, and so you're, the place that is meant to feel safe is no longer safe. That is stressful. That is not a great place to be in. And if it's because of your faith, then I can understand why it is so tempting to walk away from it. I grew up in a Buddhist family, My parents are still Buddhist. When I became a Christian, they didn't take to it well. I remember one Sunday morning, intense yelling and argumentation and things being thrown. Home for me was not safe. I didn't feel safe because I wanted to follow Jesus and I didn't feel safe being around my parents. And you know what got me through that time 
was one, trusting the promises of God, and two, the church. Having these kind of, the, the promises of God, you know, Jesus says, if you forsake your mother and your father to follow me, will you not be rewarded with a hundred mothers and a hundred fathers? You come into this church environment, and that's where it is. You, you, you kind of have these surrogate parents in your lives, these surrogate fathers and mothers. That will really help me to walk through the difficulties of, of hard family life at home was having older Christians in the church look out for me. You know, if you're an older Christian here, that gives you a wonderful privilege and responsibility of being a father or a mother or an older brother or sister to a younger Christian. So what's preventing you from engaging with the mission of God? Final application. If we know that God's mission means preaching the gospel to Christians and non-Christians, then what do we aspire for our church to become? SLE Church, uh, for those who don't know, started out as the Chinese Christian Church of Brisbane. It began in the uh, mid-1970s, and it met in the, uh, as a Bible study group and then eventually as a church service in the garage of Uncle Richard Teo, who was a founding elder and who we prayed for earlier, whose health is not going well at the moment. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I remember it had an initial vision to reach out to the Vietnamese migrants in Dara and Inala. Well, here I am. So. Our church has a rich and long history of Asian ministry, specifically Southeast Asia, uh, Singapore and Malaysia in particular. And I think that's wonderful, and that's a distinctive that we shouldn't lose. Now, we shouldn't lose it for something that is known as the homogenous unit principle. Have you ever heard of that? Like attracts like. So, for instance, it's the idea that, if, uh, that a church which has particular characteristics which uh, will more easily attract people with that shared characteristic. And there will be less barriers for people to jump in order to come to church. And so you look around this room and you see mostly Asian faces, but it's not just any Asian faces. It's Singaporean and Malaysians. Now, you know what this means? If someone came to us from mainland China who didn't speak English that well, they're going to find it really hard to church among us. And it's not because I think we're going to be bad at loving them and looking out for them, but it's just the nature of our church, right? They're going to be much more suited to come to the 9 a.m. Huayan Tongue service in this hall. Why? Not because we're racist and we'll fail to love them, but because this place has that particular characteristic. And so for someone from mainland China who doesn't speak English that well, they're going to find it more comfortable to, to be in this place to hear and learn the gospel. Now, we're pretty good with Singaporean and Malaysian churches, and, and, and that's the ministry that we do, and we do it really well. But are we willing to push beyond that? If you migrated, you know, if you migrated to Australia from overseas you're, and you're, you're older, you're generally more willing and more desirous of connecting with people with the same accents, the same faces, the same culture. That's just what happens. It's a natural tendency. The coming generations are going to be less like that. You have to think about your churches when you're back home. Right? Your generation is more likely to work with non-Asians 
uh, non-Christians. You're going to be more likely to have friends who are non-Asian and non-Christian. Now, if I could be a bit of a prophet for a moment, and please don't stone me if I'm wrong about this. Our world is fast becoming a global world, a global place. Right? Immigration is much easier. Movement of people is a lot easier today than it was you know, 50 years ago. And because of this movement, we're going to see an increasing number of cultures, different cultures living side by side, multiculturalism. Right? So it's not a question of if and when we're ready. It's actually a question of if we're willing to be ready. If we're willing to engage with this and become something more in order to reach more to give the glory that God, he, that God so deserves. See, what would it take for us to plant a multicultural church? for future generations who will be multicultural. You know, it might mean less spending less time with those we're familiar with and spending more time with people who are outside of our comfort zone. But if we're doing it for God's mission, would we be willing to do it? You know, it might mean getting used to the idea of uh, interracial relationships and marriages in our church. But again, if we're doing it for God's mission, would we be willing? It might mean that families in our church might have to separate and church separately. Not break up the family, but church separately. So one fa- the parents will go to one church and the adult children will go to another church. I know for the older generations that That's hard. That's something that they would love. They love having their whole family together in one church. But if you're doing it for God's mission, would you be willing to do it? It might mean that we partner with a non-Asian, perhaps Caucasian church in order to expand and plant a multicultural church together. Right? We've got 200-odd people in this room, but if we took out 20 people to plant a church full of Asian faces, homogenous unit principle again you're not going to suddenly attract non-Asians into an Asian environment. It's just really hard. Speaking to a guy in the first service who, um, in his workplace, he's the only Asian person. A lot of his workmates and friends outside of church are non-Asian. And he said to me, I can't invite non-Asians to our church. I said, why is that? Is it because we would not be loving towards them? He said, no, no, we're loving, we're friendly, we would welcome them. It's just intimidating. In the same way that for, that for him, you know, he kind of sticks out as the only Asian in his workplace, right? A white face suddenly comes in here and they suddenly stick out and it can be intimidating. Now, when that happens here, I sincerely hope, and I've seen it, I, but I do sincerely hope we continue to be a place that warmly welcomes everyone here. And I've spoken to those who are non-Asian faces among our church and they do sense a warm, white, welcoming envi- environment here. But if we're going to plant a church for multicultural uh, reaching out, we might need to partner with a non-Asian church. And that's going to mean letting go of control and doing things differently. But if we're doing it for God's mission, would we be willing to do it? 
Now, these are just ideas. There are no concrete plans. Don't ask me, are we planting a church with, you know, a, an Asian, a non-Asian church? There's no plans on the table. But I want to ask the question, are we willing? If we say yes to that, then we can begin the adventure of trusting God to carry out his purposes and his mission through us. Are we willing? Let me pray. Father in heaven, it's been a big message today. It's been a big message because it contains so many challenges on our personal godliness and on our willingness to keep connecting outside of our comfort zone, to keep preaching the gospel to this world, uh, to keep being able to preach the gospel and make disciples of even those who have yet to hear Jesus. And that takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort and a lot of and a desire. And a, uh, it takes a fair bit of courage. And so we pray, Father, for your help in this. We ask for your Spirit's help to be able to t- um, do all of this together, to have a willingness to do this together. And we ask, Father, that you do this for your glory, the growth of your kingdom, and our joy together in Jesus' name. Amen.